Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence by the Ohio Board of Regents in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, a brand-new facility completed in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in the new building. Read more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we're talking with Dr. Andrew Smiler, the author of a new book called Dating and Sex, a guide for the 21st century teen boy. The book is targeted to 13 to 16 year old boys and it talks about relationships sex, sexual health, and personal responsibility. It's factual, but sprinkled throughout with humor while addressing these common questions. Dr. Smiler is a licensed therapist and an expert on boys, men, and masculinity. He's been featured in the New York Times and has written for Huffington Post, Shriver Report, Everyday Feminism, and The Good Men Project. He's an associate editor for the Journal of Psychology of Men and Masculinity and served as president of the Society for Psychological Study of Men and Masculinity. The book is Dating and Sex, a Guide for the 21st Century Teen Boy. Uh, Let's back up, Doctor. Why did you write this? Why did you feel that there was a need for this? Thanks. That's actually a question I get a fair amount. There were a couple of reasons I wrote this. One is that it seems to me that nobody is really talking to teen boys to give them a good framework for how to think about and how to approach dating and sex. Boys get a lot of messages like, don't be a jerk or go out and have sex with as many girls as you can or take care of your partner um, but they don't really get kind of good big picture framework for how to put it together and what makes the most sense for them and that has really come home to me in the last few years and following my first book which was challenging Casanova beyond the stereotype of the promiscuous young male as I've spoken to people about that book and how American culture has changed its views of male sexuality. People would ask me for books that their kids could read. And the the more I looked for books, the more I realized that the books that were out there were either written for girls exclusively or they were written for both boys and girls, which means that, you know, they're good for a lot of boys, but also not good for a fairly large number of boys. And the examples don't necessarily... Um, resonate for boys. So I thought, I know this stuff. I work with boys and, you know, I know the academic research. Maybe I need to be the person to write that book. And so I did. 
It, it's interesting, and and I skipped around in, in reading through the book. Uh, you aim it at 13- to 16-year-old boys, but yet it's not written at a childlike level. Thanks. And uh, one of the things that folks in the audience should know is that the book is designed so that um, readers can skip around. You probably noticed that there are lots of moments where I say, all right, if this is what's going on for you, skip over to chapter four, skip out to chapter eight. So um, that is a fine way to read the book. Um, As adults, and particularly adults thinking about talking to teen boys about dating and sex, we... Many folks don't have a good idea of what it is that boys can really understand or what they're being exposed to through the media. Um, and I and the boys I work with a lot of times get frustrated when it feels like they're being talked down to, as you know many adults do. Um, so I wanted to write it at a level where they could understand where there might be a few moments where, I'm really pushing it or beyond their ability, um, but also at a level where they can uh, use the framework, use the information in the book to understand what they're seeing in the media and what they're seeing around them. Um, so I didn't want to dumb it down in any way. Well, I, I read that it was written and relies on secular ethics uh, emphasizing sexual health and personal responsibility. I, I read those uh, items before I got into the book, and certainly those those items really come to the fore in the book, especially uh, the the health and personal responsibility. That seems to be an underpinning of every part of the book. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm. It's it's always nice to hear that that comes through. Um, you know, here in, in early 21st century America, we talk to teens, talk to adults a lot about being responsible for yourself. And most folks will tell you that that is a good and fine thing, that they try to be responsible for themselves. So that was really um, kind of an easy place to connect the book in to some larger dialogues. Um and it's certainly something that the current day sexuality education movement relies a lot on, being responsible for yourself, also being responsible for your partner, given that most sexual activity uh, happens with a partner. At the same time, I wanted there to be some kind of moral component. Again, most teenagers strive to, to have a set of values and to live up to those values, whether those are explicitly based in a religion that they actively participate in, whether it's a little bit more self-constructed. Most people, most teen boys, want to be good people. Um, So I wanted to have some kind of anchor there where we get to, you know, this is how you can date people and be having sex with people and also be a good person. Um, And I didn't want to root it in any particular religious tradition that folks might object to. I thought the way you uh, organized the book was was fascinating to me. The first 13 pages are essentially frequently asked questions, which you give a short answer to, but then 
refer the reader to another part of the book where they can get more details. If if a young man is looking at this book and just reads the 13, first 13 pages, he's going to get it, or at least get a lot of it. And, and I found that a, as a great way of starting the book, but a unique way of starting the book. Thank you. Um, I owe a lot of credit to that. Uh, for that section to my editor, Christine Enderly from Imagination Press. Uh, the fact was her idea, and it's certainly one that um, has become increasingly common in our culture. So again, kind of an, an easy point of reference. But um, we know that there are certain questions, many of them in those first uh, couple of pages, that boys ask over and over. Um, and so I wanted to make it easy for boys to find that information, and then be able to go read further if they wanted uh, more than three sentences. And, and also, I, I noticed that the book is essentially divided into sections. Uh, and, and the first section of the book starts out talking about relationships and why relationships are important. In these kinds of books in the past, it's been sort of the mechanics of sex and, and not really talking about relationships. And with young men, you've started with the relationships and not into the mechanics. That obviously was something you did by choice. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, there are a couple reasons that I started off with relationships. One comes right from the research and right from my speaking and right from my clinical work. The vast majority of teenage boys, young men, uh, adults of all ages want their sexual activity, have a clear preference for being sexual with someone that they are partnered with. Um, whether we call that dating, whether we call that marriage, whether it's those early stages where we're not sure what to call it anymore. Um, most guys want to have some kind of emotional connection or at least the beginnings of that emotional connection with the person that they're being sexual with. So it seemed really important to me to prioritize the relationship piece in the book and even in the title, Dating and Sex. Um, there's also kind of a secondary purpose for me as author, as researcher, which is about changing our conceptions of what it is that teenage boys want. You know, here in, in 2016, we think that guys just want to get laid, that all they're interested in is sex. And that's not true. That has never been true about the majority of men. Um, and it's not what we believed about boys and men 50 years ago. But we have convinced ourselves in the last few decades that that's what guys want. And we are really doing a disservice to everyone by holding on to that uh, mythology. When you get to the second part of the book, uh, it's really about pleasure and sexual behavior. And I, I found the term sexual behavior interesting. It's not just about sex, because you talk about sexting, you talk about sex with yourself, you talk about roles and orientations and stereotypes. Uh, it, it's much broader than just as I was growing up, the term sex. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, we, again, we as a culture 
when we discuss sex, we tend to think about just intercourse, just um, boys putting their penis in some part of somebody else's body. But the reality is much more complicated. And in many ways, the reality has always been much more complicated. One of the complications is the relationship in which this kind of sexual activity, sexual behavior is happening, um, but also complicated by the fact that there are multiple behaviors that might qualify as sex. We can go back uh, 20 years to and talk about whether or not oral sex is really sex and, you know, have Dan Rather discussing President Clinton's private life there. Um, so we needed, I really wanted to put sexual activity into that broader framework. Um, so I, so I use terms that reflect that. I talk about sexual behavior, sexual activity. I talk about pleasure, which is one of the main reasons to do any of this kind of stuff, but rarely the only reason. Um, and, you know, when in, and I start that section of the book by talking about consent. Again, this is about being responsible, taking care of yourself in some ways, taking care of your partner in some ways, um, and in some ways really just about being a good person. Not only did you start that section talking about consent, but uh, you you made a special emphasis, at least from a reader's perspective, on withdrawal of consent, and that consent is not necessarily a continuum. Yes, thank you. Consent is more complicated than many boys and even uh, many girls and many adults often think about. And it's not something that we tend to talk about with boys in any detail. Um, girls who are uh, engaged with kind of mainstream media, especially magazines or websites that are geared towards girls, get a lot more detail about this. And you can find a whole slew of articles and, and segments of TV shows where they discuss, you know, some group of girls discuss how far do you want to go with this? What are you ready for? What are you willing to agree to? But we don't talk to boys about that. And we tend to present sex to boys as something that's very goal-directed. It's all about scoring, if you will. Um, it's an approach that doesn't really allow people to stop because the goal is to score. And from all of the sports that boys play and that boys follow, we know that the goal is to score and, with the exception of golf, to score more points than the other team, um, a metaphor that doesn't translate very well with sex. But boys don't really understand the ways that that metaphor breaks down. And they don't understand, they don't get a framework for understanding when it's time to, stay, to say stop or when it might even be time to go backwards. And it could be your partner going backwards or saying stop. And it could actually be the boy saying, I want to go backwards or I want to stop. Because boys are rarely told that they can say no. So all of this discussion around consent in the book um, hits multiple pieces, including the boy's ability to say no or let's slow down or let's go backwards. The portion in, in the second part that I found also fascinating was the, the portion on sexting. And, and that's often in the news but it brought up a broader question to me, and that is redefining sexual activity in a technological age. 
and uh, the the different questions and issues and ethical problems that that brings up. Sexting, again, we tend to give boys and girls, I think in many cases, very simplified messages about something that is actually much more complex. And again, and here specifically, I'm not sure if we as adults don't realize the complexity or if we're just trying to simplify it because perhaps we are uncomfortable in part because we don't know so much because many of us um, are not of the texting generation and grew up with voice um, and not text. So it makes a difference. Sexting is not a simple behavior. It is really like the sexual activities it resembles, much more complicated. Sexting can be a message that is really just flat text of, do you want to have sex later or do you want to engage in some particular activity later? It can include images such as eggplant or flower, um, which have additional sexual meetings that hopefully you all can guess here. Um, and it can include pictures. And when the media talks about it, and particularly the news media talk about it, they mostly are almost exclusively talk about pictures, dick pics, whatever it is. Um, but they don't talk about these other aspects of offering or asking about sexual activity or about being suggestive without sending a photo. And we need to be clear with our kids about how these things differ, where our comfort level is. Um, certainly the law draws very, or at least reasonably clear lines, because if we're talking about a picture of a minor, um, and particularly a naked picture of a minor in this situation, then we might be talking about pornography. Whereas just a flat text message of, hey, do you want to do this? is never going to be pornography, at least as far as I can tell, and I am not a legal scholar. Um, so we need to be, we need to help our kids understand how these things vary and where they might draw the lines and where we would like them to draw the lines. I've, I've also found in, in that section, uh, the sex with yourself uh, section, uh, differed so much from <laughs> the way <laughs> the books I had growing up, but, uh, you know, where you would either die or, or go blind or, or uh, go crazy or, or something. It, it, this, to me, was really refreshing, and it, it gave license, but also gave uh, sort of a context uh, that uh, is often, I think, ignored. Thank you. Um, it, it was important to me in writing a book for boys this age to really talk about masturbation and not just in a quick paragraph or two. Um, we know that masturbation does not cause people to go blind, nor does it cause hair to appear on your palms. That's other parts of puberty. Um, and I wanted to give boys uh, a sense of what it is that masturbation can actually do for them that may be beneficial and why this behavior that many adults seem like they're against um, is something that feels so good for boys. I certainly grew up with a whole set of those mixed messages saying that masturbation was bad and yet 
was clearly enjoyable when I was sitting in my bedroom there. Um, and there's, if our goal is to control adolescent sexuality, particularly male sexuality, since we're talking about boys, then there's a reason why we give boys these messages that masturbation is bad. But if our goal is to really help boys understand themselves and who they are and the roles that sex and masturbation might play in their lives, then we want them, or at least I want them, to do that from a framework that really makes the responsibility and kind of the ethical decisions theirs and doesn't give it to some external feature such as, you know, you're going to go blind. We'll be back after this short message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students that want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Chapter 9 in, in your book is about sexual roles and orientations and, and talks about realities and stereotypes. But unless I misread the chapter, it also talks about fluidity and people maybe not being pigeonholed in one particular area, but talks about the range of possibilities. Did I, did I read that correctly? You did read that correctly. Um, a chapter called Fluidity probably wasn't going to work, but a chapter that uh, is called Stereotypes and Realities is a little bit more amenable to uh, most boys, I think. So that was the title. Um, we certainly see today a lot of questioning around the idea that there are only two options, male and female, when we have all of this information that has come out in the past 10 or 20 years about uh, what used to be called intrasex and is now and are now called disorders of sexual development. Certainly a lot of press and discussion around trans um, as opposed to just having two options, masculine and feminine. And I wanted to address those things in the book in a way that helped boys develop a framework that doesn't have this kind of either-or structure. So I talk about different continuums, or continua, as one of my English teachers surely pounded into my head. <laughs> um, this is the world that they are living in. It is not unusual in this day and age for kids who are in high schools of where their graduating class is, say, 300 people, to have at least one person come out as gay. There are reasonably good odds that at least one person is going to come out as trans. Some, someone else might come out as queer. 
And I wanted boys to have a framework for understanding what those terms might mean. And both for the person who's claiming those identities, as well as what it might mean for a boy who then perhaps gets asked out, or even just a boy who is assigned to do some science project or something with this other kid who has opted out of the binary system or who is explicitly outside the binary system. Um, and in some ways this is about social justice, which is big for me, but in some ways it's just about helping them navigate the terrain of their everyday life, even when it isn't necessarily about their own experience of gender or their own experience of sexuality. In the third part of the book, you talk about puberty and adolescence. And uh, uh, the fascinating part of that section for me was that historically seems to be where these books normally start. But with you, you put it at the end, which is obviously sort of a ranking order for you. <laughs> talk, talk about that. Um. In writing a book about dating and sex, which we know for most kids does not start until puberty, it really seemed uh, difficult for me to not talk about all of the changes that come with puberty. Um, so I knew I was going to need this chapter in there someplace. At the same time, um, my expertise is not on the biological or physical aspects of development. So I knew I was going to go kind of light on that. And I also wanted this book to be different than uh, many of the other books that have been written that really are all about here are the changes going on inside your body. Um, to the extent that kids have health class that talks about sex ed, or at least puberty, they are going to get that somewhere else. And quite honestly, except for my life as a sexuality educator, the discussion of my vast deference has never just come up in casual conversation. <laughs> and to tell you that, that is a piece of knowledge that only has very limited use for me. Um, so I wrote a chapter on puberty that talks about the experience of having puberty happen to you and what's going on and all of the changes, not just the physical development that enables and allows sexual activity, but the changes in boys' experience of their own emotion, the changes in thinking patterns as new cognitive abilities come online, because those things often get left out of the other books, and yet they are very real for boys as they are going through their teen years and beyond that. And so I wanted to give uh, that information some airtime as well. Let me go beyond the book just a little bit, but then sure. cir circle back to the book. Um, you know, we've seen over the last few years several documentaries, The Hunting Ground and, and others, uh, talking about uh, sexual assaults, uh, especially on, on college campuses, but, but not limited to college campuses. And when you see those documentaries, you get a sense, at least I did in watching them, uh, that often males have a sense of entitlement that uh, goes over into sexual relations and it's that they're entitled. 
your book seems to totally counter that, uh, but doesn't address it head on. It's it's almost in a, in a subtle way. Was was that part of your purpose? Um, there there was certainly a decision about how I was going to address or mostly not address sexual assault. The framework for the book, the framework that I'm writing from, talking about responsibility, talking about secular ethics, places a lot on individual values. And my own default tends to be more egalitarian. It doesn't have this component of traditional masculinity, if you will, or traditional American culture that assumes the male is in charge. Uh, Certainly that egalitarian approach is the way that most teenage boys who've been raised in the last 30 years have gotten as the ideal. But at the same time, they also get this other set of messages about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a guy and particularly what it means to be a guy in relationship. So as guys, we are supposed to compete at kind of all times and in as many realms as possible. We should strive to be number one at something, if not at many things. And we now talk about being number two as being the first loser being a loser is never acceptable as a guy who is even remotely like the stereotype are going to be judged on that stereotype and how to be important. Um, We tell guys get a lot of messages that they should quote unquote, wear the pants in the relationship. They get a lot of messages and there's a lot of media that supports the idea that guys should only be interested in having lots of sexual partners having lots of sex with one partner is somehow not as good in this stereotype or mythology. And certainly not having sex at all or having very few partners is bad. So in this kind of set of stereotypical or traditional messages about masculinity, there is a very clear push to be in charge, to be promiscuous, to maybe violate the rules because, hey, no blood, no foul. And then we have, for most guys, the reality of their day-to-day and the reality of the relationships that they want, which are much more egalitarian, much more sharing and communal problem-solving. And it's a very different set of messages. Um, For me, as a sexuality educator, um, you know, I, I very much prefer this egalitarian approach but it's not one that guys really get details about anywhere else in the culture. If you want to be the the big promiscuous stud, there's lots of examples for that. Um, One of the places, so that's kind of the setup for me on these two very different approaches to dating and sexuality that um, folks are exposed to in our culture. To bring that then back to sexual assault, One of the places that kind of we as a culture go wrong is that we're not really teaching guys to navigate the worlds of this stereotypical masculinity and also this kind of day-to-day that's more egalitarian. And we tend to give girls in particular this push towards egalitarianism. 
So then how do you mediate the two of them? How do you deal with being a guy who just won sex in a world where girls are told that that's not exactly an okay thing for a guy to want and it's not exactly an okay thing for you to do because we know that still today girls get shamed for being promiscuous. Right. So, you know, there's a disconnect there and how do you navigate that? For the guys who are really all about competing and all about winning and all about having as many partners as they can and who also believe no blood, no foul, or it's legal till you get caught, if that's your MO, if that's the framework that you're coming from, well, there's really not anything wrong from that perspective with deceiving someone, with lying to a partner. Maybe you think that there's nothing wrong with drugging a partner or having sex with someone who's so passed out that they can't verbalize anything um, because then you get to win and it's all about winning. Um, and so we, we, as a culture, don't really take that apart for boys and don't help them understand the different perspectives. And I very wanted them, very much wanted them to understand. And in some ways, I am hopeful that they will kind of go with the flow and their generation and choose the more egalitarian approach and uh, not so much this traditional or stereotypical approach. We often uh, ignore uh, male victims of sexual abuse unless it's a big story like with the clergy or, or a football coach. Obviously, the statistics show that it happens uh, more often and more frequently than anybody knows or cares to know. Uh, talk about how that relates to to your studies and what you've been doing. Um, okay. Sorry, I was going to parse that in terms of the book. Yeah, and in, in, in relationship to the book as well. Um, we know that uh, kids and teens who are sexually abused and raped um, have a very different learning experience when it comes to physical intimacy, sexuality, even um, kind of romantic relationships that are going to be sexual. So as parents um, and as educators – we need to be conscious that there are a lot of boys, one in four, one in six, depending on whose numbers you like, who have that experience and who have already learned a very dramatically different set of messages and set of rules about sex. Uh, in my book, Dating and Sex, I wanted to make sure that those boys' experience were included, um, in part because there are so many of them, but also in part because... Um, there are good, there's a good chance that any of my readers will know someone, another boy who has been sexually abused or raped. And I didn't want the readers, whether they've been sexually abused or not, to have some perspective on how that impacts a guy's development. And so that they are perhaps more sympathetic and understanding because we know that male survivors in particular often don't say anything for decades and so this might be a way that some of them can raise the topic with somebody else. And it can have, uh, as you noted, many different manifestations, especially at that age. It could either be uh, towards the promiscuous side or, or towards the uh, don't anybody touch me side. Absolutely. It, it certainly shows up in those two dimensions. It impacts uh, how those boys decide who to trust and who not to trust, 
how they respond sexually with people touching their bodies, even if they think they're going to be okay. They may find themselves in a moment where they freeze, um, also impact how they touch their partner's bodies. Um, and in many ways, the, the etiology is quite similar to what we know for female victims, um, but we don't tend to talk about boys' victims. So I wanted it um, very much to be included in the book as a recurring theme uh, without being the center of the book. Well, Dr. Best of luck with your book and and your message. I just wish that uh, years and years ago I had something like this. <laughs> Thank you. That that is probably the the one response I have gotten more than anything else was, "Wow, I really wish I had this when I was growing up." Certainly true that that I wish I had this book when I was growing up. Well, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we've been talking to Dr. Andrew Smiler, author of a new book called Dating and Sex, a guide for the 21st century teen boy. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me via email, hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.